I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. The airtime we spend together is usually filled with talk of buildings and the business of commercial real estate. What we don't often get into is the topic of the actual air itself. On this episode, a team from Harvard University on the relatively novel idea that there's business value in real estate that's literally good for the people inside. In fact, they wrote the book on it, Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Drive Performance and Productivity. What we think has been missing from this conversation from a long time in the business world is just how important buildings are to your employees and the bottom line of your company. That's Joe Allen, one of those co-authors, who's also the director of the Healthy Buildings Program and an assistant professor at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. We think this will be more and more important, even post-COVID, as people think about what else is in the outdoor air, what else is in the indoor air, and how does that apply for us. And that's co-author John McCumber, a senior lecturer in finance at Harvard Business School who's also done more than 30 case studies on infrastructure projects and office buildings. John brings three decades of practical experience in real estate and the construction business to his work as a writer and educator. We'll study up on Healthy Buildings, a book that was hailed as one of 2020's best by Fortune Magazine and the American Institute of Architecture. We'll talk about the science and the business of sustainability and wellness, the effect of temperature and filtration, and more. From the power of aromas like roses and cinnamon buns, to the return on investment for something as simple as fresh air. Coming up, the case for healthy buildings. That's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to the Weekly Take, and this week we're going to talk about healthy buildings with two terrific guests from Harvard University. So uh, you gentlemen wrote a terrific book, Healthy Buildings, which I'll tell you what, man, this is Wellness 101 as far as I'm concerned, and I've been in the real estate business for 30 years. But rather than my very brief description, Joe, why don't we start with you? Tell us what's in the book. Well, I like how you described it as uh, Health and Wellness 101. We wrote this book to be accessible to everybody. You don't have to be an expert in public health or in uh, real estate finance to really get the main message across here. And I see the main message as this. Building performance drives human performance, drives business performance. They're all linked. And what we think has been missing from this conversation from a long time in the business world is just how important buildings are to your employees and the bottom line of your company. So really, that's the simple message. We bring in the science in a way we think is really accessible. It's not a science book. It's not a textbook by any means. But we populated the book with real examples from the research literature to show that this isn't hand wavy, right? This is real science. This is real finance. And it makes a lot of sense. I also think that probably explains why John and I were a natural pair to write the book. I come from the public health side and John's from the business school. So this was a pre-COVID book. And uh, part of what attracted me to Joe's work was the work he did on the cognitive uh, function study, which was an empirical study of cognition, basically, under different conditions of air quality, notably carbon dioxide particulates, volatile organic compounds. So we were looking at that in the present time and the future time, how we thought that people's interest in healthy buildings would evolve. We often talk about the before times, before COVID, during time, return to the office, and then uh, after COVID. So... A lot of the initial message of the book for me is 
We've kind of gone overboard on the energy thing and the green buildings thing and been building sick buildings for 20 or 30 years or somebody somewhere in the organization is getting a pat on the back for saving two cents on electricity by not running the fans, not running the dehumidifiers, not bringing in fresh air. On the other side, somebody in the organization is losing dollars, tens and twenties and and hundreds at a time from people not really doing their best. So that was sort of the before times idea. If you think of going forward with people's increasing interest in air quality, not just from COVID, but from particulates and fires and all this, we think this will be more and more important, even post-COVID, as people think about what else is in the outdoor air, what else is in the indoor air, and how does that apply for us, of course, in universities and government, but also in commercial real estate. Well, let me read the full title of the book, because it has my favorite word in it. It says, Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Drive Performance and Productivity. And productivity is my favorite word because it is the most misunderstood word, but it is the holy grail of business decisions. Joe, what I was fascinated about the book was that you put some real numbers behind that because you were suggesting things such as temperature changes, different gases or lack of certain gases, CO2, uh, as one of them in the workplace, increases your cognition increases your productivity. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's right. It's really a, a simple study that was sophisticated in design and all the control strategies. But at its core, we basically had a bunch of knowledge workers in an office space, and we changed the air they were breathing in subtle ways each day. And at the end of the day, we give them this hour and a half long cognitive function battery. And we're testing cognitive function domains that are clearly linked to better performance and productivity. Things like How does air quality influence your strategic decision-making performance? How does it influence how you seek out and utilize information? How does it influence your performance during a crisis? How you respond, and importantly, how do you recover from that crisis? And the study tested how simple changes to indoor air influences those parameters. These are not studies of some wild, extreme, unattainable, super healthy indoor environment. It's pretty much what every building can do right now. Bring in a little bit more outdoor air, uh, use products that emit less of these chemicals, lower the CO2 concentration, and sure enough, people think more clearly. And let me just say this, that's the first study we did in this series. We call it the COG effect study. We're now in our third series. We just completed and published our global COG effect study. Similar in design, but we followed office workers around the world for an entire year, over 300 workers, and we tested them multiple times at their desk, simultaneously measuring air quality at their desk and cognitive function. Well, it turns out we see the benefit every time you improve the ventilation rate. There's no threshold. There's no magical cutoff. So it tells us, importantly, that even the good buildings have room to improve. So if I were to sum it up, if we do many of the things you're suggesting in your book, Healthy buildings make you money. They may cost a little bit to install, (laughs) but they actually end up making you a lot more. So, John, now put on your construction hat. Walk me through how you, Mr. Builder, see the return on investment from healthy buildings. Part of what we uh, use in our financial model is essentially a zone of possible agreement. We did some uh, math saying, okay, here's a typical tenant. might be a law firm or an accounting firm or something like that. They have 40 employees. And usually for a firm like that, uh, their payroll is about half of their income statement. And their rent might be 20 or 30% of their income statement. And their utilities, if it's a pass-through like a net lease, are 4 or 5%. So 
if you think about trying to save energy on the tenant side, here we are trying to save 5% of 5%. That's peanuts. If the kind of research that Joe has found shows that people can indeed be a standard deviation clearer in their thinking, that potentially goes to the top line, the total holy grail. If that tenant, their people can do two more reports, make a few more calls, do a couple more claims processes, and analyze three or four more business plans, that's even better than avoiding sick outs. It's real revenue to them. So if the tenant gets to keep all the revenue, that goes to their bottom line. In our math, it increases their net income by about 10% looking at a 1% or 2% improvement in their output because of the healthy building and about a half a percent decrease in sick outs and all that, which is the normal stuff you've heard about before. And the, the energy savings are peanuts. That's the zone of possible agreement. So if the tenant says, I'm only going to go to a building where the landlord has made it possible for me to have that kind of ventilation, the HEPA kind of filters, fresh air, those kind of things... Then there's a zone of agreement where you can talk between the employees, the tenant, and the landlord about who actually gets that saving. The art for the landlords we're talking to is to say, you know, we have a building that's demonstrably healthy, or fresh air, windows, uh, noise, all that kind of stuff. And we have smart tenant organizations who can measure this kind of thing, and they believe it, and they're going to pay us a premium. So that premium comes through, that justifies it for the landlord to do the capex, justifies for the tenant to do the opex, and the zone of possible agreement is around who gets the benefit from that extra productivity. Well, one of the case studies you use in the book is about 425 Park Avenue with David Levinson, who I would note with some pride was one of my first clients when I was a young banker with him and Rob Lapidus, many, many moons before 425 Park. Uh, But I thought David had some very interesting quotes in the book. Uh, And one of the things he says, look, In up markets, we'll get more rent. In down markets, we'll get the tenant. Do you agree with that, John? Well, of course, there's a natural experiment going on in New York City right now to see if this is going to be true. Um, And Rob and David have formed L&L Holdings, which is the developer of 425 Park Avenue, claimed to be the healthiest building in New York, maybe the healthiest building in the world. So this got Joe and my attention. And the case study we wrote looks at how much more CapEx did these guys spend? to make the building healthier, and how much more OPEX does the landlord have to spend on a regular basis recertifying this with well or fit well or whatever system it is, and keeping the, the systems in place. So you toggle that and, and look at that difference. The CapEx difference is like 3 or 4% because it's just from the HVAC. How much more rent do you have to get? That's the interesting thing is how much more rent do you have to believe. So in an up market, when you have the total premium kind of clients who are looking for every reason to attract uh, staff and have the staff working well, yeah, it's clear that they will pay a premium for that kind of space. Now you're seeing uh, almost everywhere that the sick buildings aren't as appealing. There aren't that many trades now, but if you think about trying to move a 60-story fixed window, underventilated, small elevator building in Manhattan as compared to one that, that's uh, more modern, operable windows, more light, big elevators, and, and a big HVAC system, they're clearly more valuable already. Or how many emails do you get every day from these hotel chains saying, come to our hotel, not that hotel, because our hotel is cleaner? So it's clearly thought to be an advantage in terms of market share and occupancy, even if it's not in the rate and the coupon. So I agree with what David Levinson said, that in the up markets, we'll get the premium, down market, we'll get the tenant. Well, the reason why I choose my hotels is uh, I've been fortunate to go to Hawaii a couple of times. And when you walk in, they had that pumped in smell of roses and flowers. And I was like, wow, I feel better. 
But then I read your book and I'm like, my God, are they poisoning me? And then I walked by Cinnabon. I'm like, my God, I knew it was going to kill me if I ate it. But now I've got this smell coming into my face. Let me give you a different example, Spencer. You've probably never been there, but like, if you had any casino in Las Vegas, to Caesars or MGM, they pump in fresh air all the time because they want the gamblers alert. Some of the best indoor air you can get. They've known this for a long time. You can't find the exit. It's like a, a crab uh, trap or a lobster trap, but they, they, they've been pumping in uh, fresh air a lot. It's different than the scented air you might get for Hawaii vibe, but the casinos have known how to keep people alert. Same thing in the hospital operating room where they want to reduce infection and they want to keep the surgeons alert, so it's all HEPA filters. That's been known, and it's known anecdotally. You know, if you're in a stuffy conference room, you feel logy. Part of what Joe's research has shown, that, but beyond anecdotal, it's really, there's empirical evidence around how people really do perform better. You know, I was going to tie that in. You know, uh, pre-COVID, I was out at the Burj Khalifa touring around, and it turns out, I don't know if you know this, but on each floor, they have a different smell or a different scent. And so it ties right into this, but I tell you uh, clearly what the science is saying, right? And what people are looking for now is, what does the real science say? I want clean and healthy air, right? People are getting a lot more sophisticated. It's not just, I want this floor to smell like lavender or vanilla or something like this to mask sometimes something else. But how do we just get basic clean air? And uh, speaking of 425 Park Avenue, it is raising an, an important question uh, that John talks about a lot, which is this split incentives or who controls what. That's a core and shell build out. So they've designed it with some healthy building attributes. I think it remains to be seen what the tenants of that building are going to do with their fit outs. I've seen this many times in buildings, beautiful building, uh, some of these healthy building attributes, tenant comes in, maybe they're not going to spend, maybe don't believe this argument that a a couple percent in CapEx is going to lead to these big gains. And then you create a, a less than ideal indoor space in what is a healthy building on the outside, but not a healthy building uh, on the inside. We write about this, honestly, in the book, and we actually compare it to steroid use. And we have a little anecdote in the beginning there. Hey, you can look great on the outside, right? You build yourself up. Meanwhile, you're polluting yourself on the inside. We see a lot of buildings like this. There's important lessons there, and it gets into this conversation about uh, who wins, who benefits, how do you find these areas of mutual agreement? But how do you measure it? So we've written a lot about health performance indicators. So how do you get beyond just the hand-waving into what's actually happening? Who recognizes that? Who values the information? Well, John, one of the interesting things you said early on in your comments was about this tension between green and healthy buildings. And I know in your book, uh, you try to make the case they are symbiotic, they work together, but let's call it what it is. If you have operable windows, many people in the green world will say that's a bad thing because it lets the energy out. So in general terms, how does green work together with healthy buildings or where are they at conflict? I'll answer this one way and Joe might answer it a different way. But if you think about a time series of dozens of years, we didn't have healthy buildings issues until the 40s or 50s because the buildings were so leaky. You just build a leaky building and you blow energy out to get the humidity. We didn't have the mold and all that stuff because the building was blowing up the air all year long. So then we get into the healthy building era and in I think both my, Joe and my view overcompensated. So now you have a lot of buildings that were built really without thinking about ventilation and filtration. So the quick uh, way to address that is open the stupid windows and run the fans, even if it does take some more energy. And uh, it's really quite clear about the benefits, particularly during COVID time, of open the windows, have those indoor uh, HEPA filters, they work, and that kind of thing. And part of the premise in the book is, 
Yeah, it's not as green as it might have been, but we've gone too far in chasing energy and the actual humans are not doing well. Now, I think going forward, almost any kind of high-performance building that gets closer to a, a passive house kind of standard has a very good insulation system, very little air leakage in and out. And so then it's possible to not have to condition outside air all the time. You can reuse the inside air, don't have to heat it, cool it, or dehumidify it, but you can spend more to filter it. So buildings going forward are already finding that this is cost-effective to spend a little bit more on the envelope. Then you don't have to bring in 100-degree air, cool it down to 60, drop all air out, heat it back up to 70, put it in the building, or bring in outside air at 30 degrees Fahrenheit, heat it up, uh, and run it through the building. So really, the, the savings that you get in most climates from having a building that is efficient like that more than offset running the fans and filters if you're not conditioning a boatload of outside air on a regular basis. Well, let me just, for the sake of discussion, take a little bit of the devil's advocate side here. And I would just say, running the building 24-7. It sounds like blasphemy from an energy standpoint. Keep the building running. Keep the energy on. But it's healthier and you're better for it. Joe, how do you respond? We have to have both. We have to have energy efficiency and healthy indoor environments. And I think this is the crux of the problem, is that we've been presented with this false choice for 40 years. It's energy or health. It's that false trade-off. So how do we do both and do better? Well, we have a whole chapter in the book that talks about it. But really, let's think about this from a systems-level approach. First and foremost, we have to get a cleaner energy grid. Second, we need to address fossil fuel combustion inside of our buildings. My team published a paper just a couple months ago showing that the clean energy transition that's happening in the U.S. for the past 10 years, as we've migrated away from coal, the dominant health impacts that are coming from fossil fuel combustion are no longer from the central plants. They are from buildings. Buildings are getting a whole lot more attention right now in the coming years because of on-site fossil fuel combustion. So let's clean the grid. Let's get rid of those fossil fuels, on-site combustion of fossil fuels. Last, let's start to get smarter about our ventilation systems. Clearly, we need more energy efficient systems. We can also use things like energy recovery ventilation, heat recovery ventilation. And let's merge the smart building and healthy building movements. Let's stop dumping air into our buildings 24-7 in rooms where there aren't people. So we use things like demand-controlled ventilation to pump air when and where it's needed, and importantly, pump in sufficient air. Let's not choke off the air supply in our buildings at the expense of people's health to conserve a little bit of energy, when if we take this holistic approach, we can actually do a lot more for climate and reduce the immediate impact health burden of air pollutants emitted from fossil fuel combustion. So really, I think this conversation often gets really siloed and narrowed without taking this big picture approach. We can have both. We can have energy efficiency and healthy indoor air. And anyone who presents it not in that manner uh, is presenting us with a false choice. And we've had that for 40 years. And quite honestly, you can hear it in my voice. I'm tired of it. I think I would comment also that when people analyze the energy use and the indoor health, with recommissioning a building that might be 10 years old, you know, in addition to maybe being some leaky windows, nobody has refreshed the boiler. Nobody has thought about the air conditioning system. So most of the time, the, the things that you're talking about, Spencer, in terms of the extra cost around the, the ventilation, are actually more than saved when people recommission and make their boiler run efficiently and make their air conditioning unit run efficiently and change the fans and the filters and the belts and all that stuff. Uh, there's a lot of money being left behind in core infrastructure in the building that is more wasteful than conditioning some more outside air. That's exactly right. We don't have to go out and buy brand new systems, but the simple act of commissioning 
which is the process I see it as, you know, uh, like you give your car a tune-up every year. Well, buildings need a tune-up every year. And the research from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab shows that when you commission your systems, making sure the fans are operating, make sure the filters are installed correctly, you save energy, Say that's bottom line savings right into your company. You save that energy. It's good for the planet too. And the process of commissioning improves overall indoor air quality. So it's a no brainer. What can I optimize going forward? The next time I have a capital upgrade, what do I need to put in place to give me both good indoor air quality and energy efficiency? So let's talk about temperature for just a moment. When I read about emerging market economies, I've been told that one of the single biggest factors to make that economy more productive is just good old-fashioned air conditioning. Now, obviously, air conditioning is a high energy use. There are negative externalities of its emissions. Uh, But there's a recent move, I believe, in Europe where they're talking about, well, you know, we should raise our temperature in our offices by one degree centigrade to save some energy. And then I read your book. And if you raise your temperature by one degree centigrade, you lose something like 1% of cognitive ability. So... Joe, how do you respond to those people saying you should make your buildings one degree centigrade warmer? For me, I think it sounds like one of these things that sounds great on paper, but is a totally unrealistic policy detached from human behavior and what's going on in the world uh, and also ignores the severe consequences of heat stress and also the benefits we talk about in the book in terms of cognitive function. Here's the thing. There's a couple of things, again, we can do in terms of keeping people comfortable inside buildings with regard to temperature and humidity that doesn't have to break the bank in terms of energy efficiency. First, there's already been a move in the U.S. and elsewhere to use uh, refrigerants that have a lower greenhouse gas potential. So that's one. Two, again, if we're pulling from a green grid, then the energy demand or the electricity needed to run some of these air conditioners has essentially zero marginal cost from a, a perspective of environmental costs. So I support the electrify everything movement, right? We start electrifying our buildings. We reduce the demand on the grid. We reduce on-site fossil fuel combustion. And when we, we must get to a cleaner grid. And when we get there, we'll be in a much better place in our buildings if we start to electrify these. I also think we should move away from just air conditioning to the use of heat pumps. As we electrify everything, get a cleaner grid, we should be using these tools that both provide heat and cooling and draw on electric energy. And uh, hopefully, or what needs to happen is that that's clean energy from the grid. And make a comment about what you said, Spencer. You, you conflated two concepts. One is for you know people in like the fanciest city in the world, let's talk about one degree of temperature in the office. The famous quote is about air conditioning making the economy possible is from Lee Kuan Yew, the founding president of Singapore, who thought that air conditioning made Singapore possible. And Singapore has been really thoughtful about how to do air conditioning going forward. The question really is for that in-between group of people who are living where it's more than 100 degrees Fahrenheit on a regular basis, so more than 40 degrees C. And there you have sort of a operating cost, capital cost kind of question, because in broad strokes, it'd be good if people worked or lived in places that spent more money on CapEx, in this case, around insulation against heat year-round, not against uh, cold like you might have in Minnesota or in Norway, but against heat. And part of what Joe and I are interested in is how you balance the extra upfront cost to avoid heat and other uh, health issues with the savings down the road in bad health, basically. So you're trying to to front load that expense by looking at the future benefit. Well, who gets the future benefit? 
if somebody is healthier? Does it recruit the employer, the state, the person, the tax guy? So you wind up with these funky kind of questions of tracking that down. But going forward, societies like Singapore who've thought about it and made themselves rich over the last 50 years, they'll think of making those long-term investments. What will happen in, in Mexico or Pakistan is another question. But the issue outside of listeners who are commercial real estate people thinking about New York and, and Washington um, is a global one. Um, if we're thinking about how people can perform their best. Well, let's bring it back here to the U.S. for just a moment. And I think this is a global phenomenon, but maybe it's more acute here, which is the work-from-home movement, where more people are not working in the office anymore. They're working in their houses. Joe or John, how does that impact uh, the health and wellness of the air and other factors uh, impacting employees? Well, I'll jump in. What we've been talking about here and we talk about in our book are basic um, human physiology. Uh, the air quality in your home is going to impact you just like the office, just like on the airplane or in a car. Uh, of course, what's different in the home, at least for a lot of people prior to the pandemic, was that uh, maybe your goals are different. You want good indoor air quality for a lot of reasons, but it also influences how well you sleep and how well you rest. Good indoor air quality is influencing mental health, not just cognitive function towards productivity. Now, add in this fundamental shift in how American society is working with a work-from-anywhere mentality of many people working at home and reconfiguring their homes in many cases. Well, indoor air quality matters a lot, but it's been an afterthought in how we design and construct our homes. I'll take my own office that I'm in right now. This used to be a kid's bedroom. It's now an office. I'm measuring carbon dioxide in my office right now. It's at 1,500 parts per million. This is an underventilated house, no question. I have to pop open the windows. If we weren't on a podcast, I would do it right now. But it's making everybody rethink their homes, and that just wasn't the case before. Before, I was more interested in a house that was relaxing. We'd come home, maybe have a glass of wine, I want to sleep well, uh, relax and have fun with the kids. But now it's a work environment. So a lot of this, the principles, the fundamental principles we talk about in the book and the fundamental studies on what drives better performance in an office apply equally to the home office. The word you used was equal, Joe, about um, the air quality. And I'm going to use that specifically in the context you used it in the book, that the optimal temperature isn't the same for everybody, and there are differences based upon men and women and other factors. How do you deal with that in an office environment, that different people have different optimal temperatures? It's the thermostat wars, right? And this has been long known, and not going to surprise any women listening that uh, we've set thermal comfort standards in offices around men, men's comfort, and men wearing three-piece suits. That's how old these thermal comfort standards are, right? So is it no wonder that uh, men and women disagree in, in terms of comfort levels of, with temperature in an office setting and add on top of that individual preference? So uh, we've really got it backwards. We, I think what happens and this is just the same thing with the air quality conversation, is we haven't prioritized this. People haven't thought it was important to health and well-being, right? It, it's been, oh, you're a complainer. John's complaining, he's too hot. I, Joe's too cold. He's always complaining all the time. We kind of put the burden on the individual and not recognize that this is a health issue. We talk about thermal health in our book, not thermal comfort. Most of the industry uses the term thermal comfort. Talk about thermal health. It's actually a health issue. And we show how it links to bottom line performance of the business too. So if you're hearing employees say, I'm too hot, I'm too cold, the first thing a business owner should be thinking about or executive should be thinking about is I'm losing productivity. This is time that people are spent 
distracted thinking about the air quality in the space, in this case, temperature and humidity, uh, and it's having a big impact. Where I think buildings should be going here, we can be a lot smarter again. It's, it's the merging of the smart building and healthy buildings, like I said earlier, where we can get to personalized indoor health. There's no reason we can't design and operate buildings to allow my office to be the temperature I want, John's office to be the temperature he wants, everyone else to have their own controls, customized airflow, demand control ventilation. I mean, we just haven't prioritized health and how we're designing buildings. And fundamentally, I think that's where the problem is. Well, one of the issues with what you just said, Joe, is that that might have worked in the world where we all had offices. But uh, certainly that the temperature wars may only get worse in a new modern office setting than it might have been in the past. Uh, I'll add one thing there. Think about underfloor uh, ventilation, right? Where you can actually bring in the air right to each person's desk. So you can actually have control even in an open floor setting. On top of that, you get higher ventilation effectiveness, which means even better mixing of the air. So even in an open floor plan, where people don't have private offices, there are things we can do, but we don't do them, but we can. There's certainly strategies that work. One of the interesting things is around the evolution of systems and innovation. Most of the standards we're talking about were created when the building had one system, either heating or cooling. It was on or off all the time. And there was one thermostat somewhere. I remember when I first started teaching at MIT in the winter, we'd have the windows wide open because the, the radiator was cranking for somebody else. The second is that for a long time, all you could really measure was temperature and humidity. So the engineers were thinking about temperature, humidity, and they were thinking about one thermostat in the whole building. Now, the buildings we've been in for the last 10 or 20 years have multiple thermostats, multiple zones, and New buildings that Joe's talking about have controls in each room. Um, and people can now measure these other components that go into cognitive function, notably carbon dioxide, volatile organic compounds, and particulates. So new elite buildings is one question. But then you have the second question of how do you change the fleet? There are buildings around that are 100 years old, and there are buildings being built now that are going to be here for 100 more years. So innovations percolate through really slowly. So that becomes one of the challenges for um, landlords and tenants and, and finance people also. One of the things you mention a lot in this conversation and throughout your book is the measurement system, not of productivity, but of the air quality. I guess you can go right down to the personal system of a Fitbit or whatever you want to wear on your wrist. But it does bring up the issue of privacy. How do you address that issue as it relates to measuring the work environment? Joe? I think the era of an industrial hygienist, that's people who go out and do indoor air quality surveys for workers all the time. Uh, that era where you go out and have a $10,000 piece of equipment, a $400 lab test, you write a report, it goes into the drawer, a desk of a, an executive. Uh, those days are over. The proliferation of lower cost, real-time monitors has democratized this monitoring thing. If you're not monitoring your buildings right now, you better believe your employees and customers are. It's happening. It's happening right now. Just go on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. You'll see people posting the carbon dioxide concentrations in shops, coffee shops, on airplanes, and they'll, they're shaming companies. Hey, Company X, why is the carbon dioxide 2,000 parts per million in here? So the old era where it was, you know, I have to worry about privacy, who's going to control the data, it's gone it's just gone. The data are out there. If you're not collecting, others are. And I, I like it. We have a population now that because of the pandemic is super in tune with why and how indoor air quality matter. And they want to measure it. Or if they're not measuring it, they're asking the questions of their employer. What is the carbon dioxide concentration here? How is the ventilation in this space? So I don't think it's a privacy issue 
anymore that's driving this conversation. The power dynamic has flipped. It's no longer in the hands of the building owner or the tenant. It's in the hands of the, the customer and the employees. What types of permanent changes do you think we're going to see out of healthy buildings uh, as a result of COVID? Part of this we don't totally know yet around the return to office kind of phenomenon. And of course, as all of your podcast guests have probably said, the uh, death of retail has been accelerated by, um, by COVID. So we'll wait to see what comes out on the other side. I kind of look at this um, you know, as a couple possibilities. One is that we lick COVID and every other communicable airborne disease really soon. The other is we don't. COVID-23 comes up, COVID-40 comes up, um, some other thing happens, the flu gets worse, and we have to start living with these things as a global society. The second is how successful work from away actually is. It could be that people say, just love this, I'm never coming back. Or it could be that the bosses say, you know, this thing where you're on Zoom playing with your cat and I see you two hours a week isn't really cutting it. So all those things could happen. Add on to that what Joe has already said about people's awareness of how air quality impacts both cognition and health. People are never going to forget that COVID spreads through the air. They're not going to forget that. So that awareness of indoor air quality on the part of the occupiers is not going away. As we start to wrap up, John, I'm going to ask you first and then Joe Two or three tips you're going to give every landlord out there right now with an older building. Uh, I will give the first tip and then you can follow. Uh, The first tip is to read the book, Healthy Buildings, by Joe Allen and John McCumber. Uh, But after that, John, two or three tips you'd give to uh, a landlord out there with a older product. Older, of course, is different than brand new. And uh, if you're building a building on 425 Park Avenue and you're going to get $150 in rent, that's different than somebody who's got 20,000 square feet in the suburbs and they got you know, two lawyers and a dentist, and the dentist hasn't paid the rent in three months, and you're only getting $8 net. Um, Part of what we write about in the book is a hierarchy of controls. So the more the rent is and the bigger the capital expenses, the more a landlord can spend on capital improvements like fans filtration, things like that. If if you're getting $8 net, you're not going to do that. You're going to spend money as a landlord at administrative controls. You're going to take people's temperature on the way in. You're going to see if their tenants can stagger um, what their work hours are in those kind of things that don't require a lot of capital expense but make people feel safer during COVID. After that, I'd be looking at whether these buildings are going to get some kind of unhealthy discount going forward. So if tenants and lenders worried about liability start being less interested in financing buildings that are demonstrably less healthy, then you might see the cap rates go up on those properties and you also see the operating income go down because people won't want to rent there. We don't know when the market is going to start being aware of these things. Clearly, the elite markets are all over it. It percolates at, at different rates. So I think I'd be thinking about how can I defend my building from being thought of as an unhealthy building um, going forward. And I'd be measuring what the air is like in there. I'd be working with the tenants to say, see how, how nice it is here and maybe quietly uh, de-acquisitioning some of the buildings in my portfolio that don't look like they're going to be the healthiest and go buy some other product to do a 1031 or something and uh, in a building that I think is going to stand the test of time a little more. Joe, same question to you, but I'm going to put a little twist on it. Not what you should do, what shouldn't you do? And what I'm thinking about is during COVID, people were burning candles, had Febreze, Axe body spray all over the house. 
what should you do? What shouldn't you do? So let me start with what you should do and then also a little bit of the what not. And I think the first thing you should do is recognize that the healthy buildings movement is not just for the shiny new buildings in downtown New York City. It's a total misperception out there that one, healthy buildings are expensive, and two, that it's only new buildings. In fact, from experience, we know that existing buildings can be healthy buildings. So start there. Two, take stock of what you have. Do that commissioning process. Where are you in this process? Go into the middle chapter of our book, The Nine Foundations of a Healthy Building. Pick ventilation, indoor air quality. Start checking the boxes on some of these things. Make incremental improvements every time you do a capital upgrade, and you're going to constantly be upgrading how well your building's performing. That means you're upgrading how how well your people are performing. And to John's point, it increases the competitiveness of the asset. Third, I would say go out and measure it. Measure the performance of your building. Do indoor air quality surveys. Find out if you have a problem to begin with. And what is that problem? Is it Legionella in the in the plumbing? Is it particles that are penetrating in from outdoors? Is it some other chemical, some VOC, some volatile chemical that you're not sure you're aware of? The only way to know is to go out and measure it, right? Make the invisible visible. Take the measurement and understand it. Fourth, to your point, what to avoid. Look, this is a time where buildings are getting a lot of attention, attention they've never had. Same with health. And just like we had greenwashing in the green building movement, we're going to see a lot of health washing. We're already seeing products come on the market, total snake oil here, that is being pushed onto building owners. And so you'll see in the book and other places we've written, we state a tried and true evidence-based measures. I like new technology, but if you're going to use it, you have to vet it carefully. One, does it work? Does it do what it says it's supposed to be doing? And two, Is it healthy or does it create conditions that uh, may lead to a worse effect? And believe it or not, many products being marketed right now during the pandemic actually lead to worse indoor air quality, despite being promoted as providing better indoor air quality. So you have to be really careful. And here's why you need to be careful. If you screw up energy in a green building calculation, okay, not the worst thing in the world, not good, but it's not the worst thing in the world. You screw up health and you claim your building is a healthy building, you're in real trouble. You're gambling with people's lives and there's trust involved there. You stamp on that building, hey, this is a healthy building. You're inviting people into your building. You're giving them essentially some kind of a guarantee that you've taken your role seriously and you're providing a healthy indoor environment. Well, you better do that right. So this is definitely not a domain or a time to cut corners in any way around your buildings and around health. So we think the book provides a roadmap Everything in there is cited. It's evidence-based. We can tie every recommendation back to the peer-reviewed science, things we know that work, that work to provide better health, well-being, and productivity for people in our buildings. Well, on behalf of The Weekly Take, I'd like to thank John McCumber and Joe Allen talking about their book, Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Drive Performance and Productivity. John McCumber, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Joe Allen, thanks for joining us as well. Great to be here. Thanks. For more on healthy buildings and our show, check out cbre.com slash the weekly take. As always, we appreciate your taking time to tune into our air, and we'd love your feedback as well. So drop us a note. And of course, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. In the weeks ahead, we'll return with other topics of interest. As our calendars turn to the holiday season, we'll browse the aisles of the retail sector. We'll also tee up a round of discussion on commercial real estate and, you guessed it, golf and much more. 
For now, I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well.